This is Dr. Karen, and you're listening to the Are They 18 Yet podcast, where I help pediatric therapists become better leaders so they can make a bigger impact with their services. On this show, I'll share up-to-date evidence-based practices, my own experiences, and guest interviews designed to help clinicians and educators feel more confident in the way that they serve their caseloads so they can help school-age kids grow up to be successful, kind, well-adjusted people. Hey there, it's Dr. Karen, and welcome to episode 75 of the Are They 18 Yet podcast. In the past few episodes, I've been talking about how you can develop your leadership skills as a clinician, even if you aren't in a leadership position. So in this episode, I wanted to talk about one of the really important things that we need to be able to do if we are going to be good leaders, and that is having a very good decision-making process when it comes to using evidence-based practices both for when we're actually working directly with students and when we are leading others. And ultimately, there are a lot of cases where there's not one clear right answer. But what is really important is not just the answer you come up with, but also the decision-making process you use to get there, because that's ultimately what's going to help you continue to troubleshoot and design services that are in line with best practices for kids. So In order to be able to do this, one of the most important things that you need to be able to do when evaluating all the information and options out there is to develop a very discerning BS radar so that you can sift out misinformation and find the information that is relevant to your students and information that is accurate. That is really important because There is so much inaccurate or unhelpful information out there. We want to be able to choose the right things and make good decisions and not be swindled by snake oil and things like that. But also we want to help our clients and our clients' caregivers to do the same. Evidence-based practices, so both talking through the evidence that's out there for specific areas in education and clinical practice, and also the evidence-based practice process. So developing a good decision-making process is going to be one of the cornerstone pillars of my clinical leadership program that is launching in September. In this program, I will be helping pediatric therapists be better leaders so that they can make a bigger impact with their services. And the waiting list is open so that if you want more information about this program, if you want ongoing support in creating initiatives that help you to design effective services for your caseload, for your community, for your facility, and your field as a whole, then definitely check out the waiting list page and get on that waiting list so that you can get all the information when the program is open. To join the waiting list, you just need to go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash leadership. Again, that's drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash leadership. So now let's get into the episode on evidence-based practices. Hey there, it's Dr. Karen. And in this episode, I am talking about how pediatric clinicians can be better leaders. In the past episodes, I've talked about how to 
come to terms with the fact that no situation that you're going to have is going to be perfect. There are always going to be problems or what I refer to as shit sandwiches that you're going to have to deal with. But the ideal situation is not a situation where it's perfect and there are no problems. It's a situation where you have good problems that you are willing to deal with because you care deeply about what you're doing. I followed that discussion with a talk about productivity and why a lot of self-care and productivity strategies aren't super helpful. And really what it comes down to is having what I refer to as the 30,000 foot view or really getting that big picture of what our goal is and then working backwards from there. And a lot of productivity strategies don't necessarily encourage you to do that. Now, what do I actually mean by getting the big picture of you know what your end goal is? Well, the thing is, is that a lot of therapists that I work with feel like they could be doing more for the field. They kind of have this inner desire to do more, but they can't quite tangibly put their finger on what that actually is. They just have this this need, like this, this calling that they can't quite articulate. And what can actually help them do that is to not just think like a therapist, but also think like a leader in their role, even if they aren't in a designated leadership role. Part of what can help therapists to, number one, think like a leader and also to articulate what specific tangible projects and steps that they need to do in order to make a difference in their field, in their facilities, and also just to really feel more fulfilled at work, feel like they are more autonomous and feel like they're making a bigger impact is to shift from thinking about just therapy to thinking about service delivery. So making that shift and making that distinction. Now, what actually needs to happen in order for us to plan services and answer the question of not just what do I do in therapy and what should we be doing when we actually have students or clients in front of us is to determine how we ensure that we are following evidence-based practices. And part of doing that is sorting through misinformation and developing a good BS radar. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that today in this episode, because ultimately this is the next step to really your your development as a leader and good problem-solving skills so that you can serve your caseload and make an impact. So developing your BS radar is really all about having a solid process for making decisions because we are all human beings. We are all susceptible to cognitive biases that can distort our thinking and we are all emotional beings. So that means that when we get into these heated discussions, it can be easy to either trigger defensiveness or be triggered and get defensive. So I wanted to talk about some of the things that go on in a lot of these professional circles and a lot of the discussions that are happening, as well as some typical things that you can look out for. And then I also wanted to talk about the evidence-based practice triangle. This is something that 
is discussed in, you know, in speech pathology, this is something that is discussed by our professional organization, the American Speech Language and Hearing Association, but really it applies to any medical or educational field as far as how to make decisions, how to make sure that your instruction and your therapy is based in solid evidence. And I wanted to talk about it because it's really easy to misinterpret what it actually means and how to actually apply it to practice. So I wanted to share my interpretation of how you might do that for your practice. One of the challenges with staying up to date with evidence-based practices as a clinician is that if you are responsible for serving clients and there's a lot of articles out there to read, there's a lot of information to sift through, it can be really challenging to stay up to date on all of those things. Additionally, a lot of times people will go into professional discussion groups to try to sift through it and get straight answers about it, but that often adds even more confusion because now people are throwing in their opinions and their biases in, and I've seen a lot of conversations get pretty spicy. So I wanted to talk about car. So I wanted to start with talking about a lot of common cognitive biases that I have seen both as a professional and, and as a patient, honestly. Um, it, it really, it, it, it can be difficult to, to navigate as a patient trying to figure out your own care as well. I think, uh, I'm going to, there's obviously a lot of, of different dis- types of distorted thinking, but I'm going to focus on the two that I have seen the most. And that is confirmation bias and all or nothing thinking. So obviously confirmation bias, what happens is that you have an opinion about something and instead of evaluating the information and forming an opinion, you have an opinion and then you go out and you seek information that confirms what you already believe rather than the other way around, which is obviously the opposite of what we want to do. But as human beings, we all have a tendency towards confirmation bias. Nowadays with social media, obviously it's even worse because you click on the posts that you like, you click on the accounts that you like that have things that you agree with, and then you see more of those posts. And it creates this illusion that this is the information out there and that you're getting all of the information, but really the algorithm is just showing you things that you've already clicked on, or people will tend to go into groups that have like-minded people that think like them. It's a common thing. You want to build connection as a human being, but what sometimes happens is that you go into the groups and within those groups, you choose groups that have people who believe the same things that you already believe. And so that confirms your bias The other thing could be things like Google searches. You're just going to, you know, maybe people Google things that they already believe in and then they can go and find information about what they already believe and so on. So there's, those are just examples of, of how it's happening nowadays, but there's, there's a ton of, um, there's a, there's a, there are a ton of examples. Another thing that happens, and I have, I've actually witnessed this as a patient as well, where you go to a clinician and they're like, I've got 20 plus blah, 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 years of experience. And here's my plan and it works. And I have had situations where, and this is, um, you know, with like athletic training and physical therapy, that's, that's the, uh, experience that I have had going to therapy, probably the therapy I've invested in the most of (laughs) personally. Um, 
And I'm definitely not uh, not dragging that profession because I've gotten a lot of value out of physical therapy. But finding the right physical therapist and trainer is uh, is no small task because I have I have had situations where I've worked with a therapist and they are insisting that I have to do things a certain way and it's just not working and I'm not getting results. And they're saying, well, I know my process works because, you know, it worked for so-and-so, it worked for so-and-so, it worked for this person, that person, and it's not working for me. And it that can be really frustrating because I, in those situations, I felt like there was something wrong with me. But what really might have been happening is that that therapist may have just been filtering. So, you know, I'm guessing that when they went and talked to their next patient, they didn't tell them about me. They didn't tell them about the person who wasn't getting results. They're going to pull out the examples where they did get results and whatever they did did work in their mind. And they're going to pull the evidence that's going to support what they're doing. And so, there are probably chances that in those situations where I wasn't getting results, that if I would have talked to that uh, therapist, other patients, maybe they had other patients who didn't get great results either. I maybe wasn't the only one, but they just were filtering it because they wanted to believe that their process worked. And actually, I have had, I have had situations and outside of physical therapy where I've invested in other services where the person is telling me, oh, this works, this works, trust the process, and I'm trusting the process, and it's not working, and I feel like I'm the only one, and they're telling me it works, it works, it works, and then later down the line, I connect with somebody who also had a similar experience to me. So that happens a lot. I think as a therapist, you have to be really careful to not get caught up in confirmation bias, whether it be that you're literally filtering, you know, like with the social media algorithms or whether you're just cognitively filtering where you're just kind of ignoring the information that you're physically observing that doesn't fit what you want to believe versus what you do want to believe. So that's something that we really want to we want to keep ourselves in check and and it can be a challenge and so so that's why it's really important that we are aware of not just when we do it but when other people are doing it as well and that is where that bs radar comes in because i i like to think that i i'm pretty skeptical i ask a lot of questions and when I see things like that, when I see inconsistencies where somebody is telling me one thing and I am physically seeing evidence of something else and I can recognize their own confirmation bias, then that is, that's something that you want to be aware of because many people can get very stuck in, in what they believe without really examining the evidence. The other thing that happens is that people are very black and white or all or nothing with how they think and plan through things. I see this a lot with uh, in reference to the school systems, just, you know, implying the system is all broken and, you know, they're, they pull out specific practices done by the school system, whether it be assessments or evaluation or the way that they teach reading, the way that they teach skills in general. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of negative PR going on surrounding the school systems and what what ends up happening often is that people pull out specific practices and they either think they're they're all good or they're all bad. So 
they might pull out a specific framework and if somebody questions it, then an argument ensues or maybe the opposite happens. Maybe there's something that is partially working. Um, I will give testing in the schools as an example. There are obviously a lot of issues and there's a lot of there are a lot of changes that need to happen, but some of the stuff is working. And so some people are just completely against all the testing that's happening. They're skeptical of all of it. Whereas what we really need to do is kind of be flexible in the way that we think about it, where yes, we probably need to adjust it. We probably need to throw some things out and keep others. These are the common things that I see with evaluating evidence and also just evaluating service delivery and practices. And there are plenty of other ones, but these are just two examples that come to mind. I wanted to wrap up and talk about the evidence-based practice triangle because that is really a good model that can help us with our decision-making process. So there are three different parts of the triangle. This is something that is used in speech pathology to determine what is evidence-based practice, and I've seen it used in other fields as well, or at least something very similar. And so basically, it's when we are evaluating evidence to determine how we actually serve clients, there are three different, uh, different components. So there's the evidence, the external evidence piece of the triangle, there's the clinical expertise, and there are the client perspectives. Now, I have seen things, especially clinical expertise and client perspectives get very distorted when it comes to some of the things that I've mentioned. And I have definitely seen people um, diminish those two things as well. So I wanted to go into what each of those things means and how we can use it to make decisions. So obviously, one of the first things that people think of when they think of evidence-based practices is peer-reviewed research, which obviously would fit in the the, uh, external evidence component. So With peer-reviewed research, we are talking about empirical studies that are published in journals of all different design types, whether it be quantitative, qualitative, or all of the different types of research designs can fit under this element. Um, Obviously, other things that aren't published in peer-reviewed journals, uh, maybe they're, they're published in other Other sources, textbooks, things like that can also be part of evidence-based practice. Peer-reviewed journals are the gold standard, but some of those other things can fit under that, that part as well, or even clinical trials. So sometimes clinical trials are not published in a journal, but they're published somewhere else, or our practitioners will have case studies. That can go in the external evidence piece of the evidence-based practice triangle as well. Now, obviously, if you have an individual case study that is descriptive, then that is a piece of information. It can be very useful in informing how you serve your clients. But obviously, an empirical study that has a larger group and has experimental control is going to eliminate bias. So people tend to think of that as higher quality evidence than a case study. Obviously, case studies 
And some of those other designs are really important because there are many times when a peer-reviewed study or an empirical study is not available. So we do need as much information as possible. Sometimes all we have are case studies and that's what we have to go off of. And we've got to make decisions for our students and our clients. So it can be very useful to have those, those additional pieces of evidence, even if they aren't you know, the full gold standard with, with experimental control and things like that. Um, but but we do have to understand where there's different levels of quality and rigor within that external evidence piece of evidence-based practice. My first go-to when I'm making clinical decisions is always going to be this part of the triangle. I'm going to consider when I'm pulling out a protocol, I'm going to consider what is what is something that is informed by research? What is something that I know has proven to be effective based on research? And then I'm going to figure out how to apply the other things. Now, I wanted to talk about clinical expertise because this is something that gets massively distorted in a lot of the discussion groups. And basically, people will often say, call cognitive bias clinical expertise. They'll say, well, I know this works because this works for all of my clients. And really what they're doing is just they're filtering information based on what they want to believe is true, but they're not actually using some kind of a process to make those decisions. They're just using their own cognitive bias. They are just filtering out the information that doesn't support what they believe, and they're focusing in on those cases that do support whatever it is that they're trying to trying to prove. Um, that Some of the examples that I gave where I worked with practitioners who were saying, like, this works for everybody, you know, blah, 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 trust the process. Well, um, they were trying to use that clinical expertise angle with me and it wasn't working. And and I don't know why it wasn't specifically working for me. There are many cases where therapists will use some kind of a technique that doesn't have a lot of research behind it. And they're saying, oh, well, I know that it works because of this client who gave me a testimonial or these people over here that it worked for. But really, it hasn't been developed with rigor and they're using clinical expertise, but really, or they're, they're claiming clinical expertise, but really they're just using confirmation bias. So we have to be really careful with that and make sure that we are not just confirming our own biases and calling it clinical expertise. So what does clinical expertise actually mean? Because obviously you are, as you're working with clients, going to develop some different skills that are not things that can necessarily be communicated via peer-reviewed journals. And you are going to discover things that aren't in the journals yet. The journals can't always keep up with clinical expertise when we actually look at what's going on in the field. There are many times that a clinician might discover something and then they might realize that it works and they might start developing some case study evidence. And then, you know, finally people get around to researching it. And then 20 years later, finally it's accepted practice. But the thing is, is that Clinicians can't wait around 20 years. They've got clients that they need to help right now. So they need to rely on other things besides peer-reviewed research to inform their practices. So really clinical expertise is about having a solid decision-making process. When you actually go to the American Speech Language and Hearing Association's 
evidence maps on their website where they do give some examples of, of different topic areas and evidence that fits under that evidence-based practice triangle. What you see under clinical expertise is usually that they list they list a bunch of processes and procedures. So for example, they might say, say things about client interviews and establishing a process for collecting non-standardized data and creating a narrative to understand your client's strengths and weaknesses and developing processes for that. So really clinical expertise, it's not about your opinion. It's not about confirmation bias and what you think. It's about your decision-making process because what that will allow you to do is take what you know from the peer-reviewed journals and then also take what you know about what works for your setting because when you actually take research and apply it to the real world, you have to develop your own process for actually implementing that. Now, that can be very challenging. A lot of times that's not really clear when you're actually reading a journal article. They don't tell you how to do that. They don't give you a step-by-step process for how to do it in the real world. So what you need to do is, is develop that process. And that is all about your steps and your systems. And that's why why when I talk about productivity and or, or even just having a some kind of a mission or a project, that can be about developing good protocols. You know, when I was in the school systems, we were always trying to figure out the best process for determining which students were in need of interventions. That is part of evidence-based practice, figuring out which students need supplemental interventions and then having a process for delivering those interventions. That is part of that clinical expertise angle where we're coming up with different steps that we follow consistently. So that is those skills are things that are developed over time, and that is part of our expertise. So that is how I see that particular component of the framework. We're using our knowledge to inform our processes and our steps for all of those things that we do. Now, when we look at client perspectives, this is another thing that gets distorted because a lot of times people will say things like, well, I... um, you know, this is this is evidence-based practice because we have to consider the client's perspectives and they don't like this intervention. So client perspectives, that's, you know, evidence-based practice. Well, that's that's not exactly what that means because there are many cases where we actually do have to encourage our clients to do things that are uncomfortable for them that they might not want to do at first. It is in their best interest for us to take a stand for them and encourage them to do things that are going to help them build skills and get out of their comfort zones. So a lot of times people take the client perspectives to mean I don't make the client do anything that they don't want to do. That's not what it means because we're getting into confirmation bias again. What client perspectives mean is that we are going to take our clinical expertise and our knowledge from peer-reviewed evidence and actually customize a plan based on that information that's going to fit for the client, that's going to be feasible for them. So one example might be part of that just has to do with the logistics and the resources that they have available to them. So for example, if you are in a school system and you have a client who 
can afford to go to a private therapist in addition to school, well, the way that you apply evidence-based practice and make decisions about that client, knowing that they have certain resources available to them is going to be very different than the way that you use evidence-based practice for a client who doesn't have access to that resource. So that's going to inform how evidence-based practice looks for one client versus another client. And that's just one example. So we have to take what the evidence says and fit it into what actually works for the client's life. But then it, in another respect, we, we can often start with client perspectives when we're, when we're pulling from the evidence because we always wanna start with what is going to help the client be more functional in their particular environment and what are the client's goals. What is going to help them be successful? It's not about, you know, getting them to meet norms or getting them to look more normal. It's what do they need to do in order to be successful in their particular situation and how do I help them get there? So the how do I help them get there, that's going to inform what strategies and techniques that you're actually going to pull from the evidence. Because if they have one goal, that means that you might look for evidence for meeting one skill versus another skill that might have a completely different set of evidence. Before we wrap up, I wanted to remind you that if you want more information about how to use evidence-based practices, if you want guidance in becoming a better leader as a clinician, then definitely check out the waiting list for my clinical leadership program. To get on the waiting list for the program that is launching in September, just go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash leadership. Again, that's drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash leadership. And then stay tuned for the next episode where I am going to talk about how we can actually start to make things happen in our facilities by leveraging our assets and our resources. So stay tuned and thank you so much for listening. I will see you in the next episode. Mm-hmm.